Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I am Tevi Troy, your host. Each week, we look at a new book in public policy and talk about its implications for the debate in Washington and beyond. This week, we're going to be talking to David Horowitz, the author of A Point in Time, The Search for Redemption in This Life and the Next. David is a sharp-penned polemicist who's written controversially about issues like radicalism and political correctness on campus. Well, now he's going in a slightly different direction and writing a reassessment of life towards the end of the journey. We're going to talk to David about what this reassessment means and why he's gone in such a different direction in this new and beautifully written and poignant book. Hello, and welcome to David Horowitz. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Public Policy. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'd love to get started just by asking you a little bit about uh, your background. It's a very interesting background. I remember reading a book, um, books by you in the 1980s. I read your books on the Kennedys that you wrote with Peter Collier and the book uh, Destructive Generation uh, at a very early stage in my uh, intellectual development. So I've always appreciated your writing. But uh, th- this book, A Point in Time, is very different from some of your stuff. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you came to write this particular book? Well, you know, I started off as a radical. My parents were communists. Um, and uh, a lot, a lot of this book is is about um, people who seek a redemption in this life, which is the way I would describe all progressives. I was the founder of the New Left, one of them, edited its largest magazine. Um, left the left in the mid seventies um, and became a conservative um, when I, I guess. <laughs> I voted for Ronald Reagan in 1984. Um, you know, I started off as a, um, I wrote a book about Shakespeare, actually, when I was quite young. I always had a kind of anchoring for literary things. Um, if you've read Radical Son, Radical Son has uh, parts of it um, Particularly, the early parts are, are are not written in the polemical vein that I guess I become known known for. I I had vowed when I left the left that I was going to talk to leftists the same way they talk to everybody else, very aggressively. Um, well, you certainly lived up to that vow. I did, yeah. Um, you know, and I felt I was kind of atoning. I mean, the uh, conservatives are way too polite. They're incredibly well-mannered and decent. And it it actually is a, a, a weakness in the political battle, which is a street fight. Uh, and conservatives' jaws are always dropping when they, these so-called liberals who are not liberal really about anything except hard drugs, sex, and spending other people's money. Um their jaws drop when these liberals turn out to be as nasty as they are when they you know, try to destroy people they disagree with, uh, which they've done to every conservative leader 
you know, I, I, I just took it as my role. I mean, I've, I've hurt myself, myself literally by doing it, but um, I, I feel it was necessary. I, I, uh, anyway, so I'm not going to apologize for my, my polemics. But I, I enjoy writing these, these kind of books. I've written three of them. Um, I did a book called The End of Time some years ago, uh, which really came out of, uh, I can't remember if I started it. I think I even started it before I got a prostate cancer. So I wrote a little bit about that in the book, but it's about mortality and, and life and how, um, how life looks from sort of the other end of it. Um, then I wrote a book about my, my daughter who died uh, young in her 40s um, a couple of years ago called A Cracking of the Heart. And the phrase, A Cracking of the Heart, I, I lifted from Rabbi Alan Liu, who was her rabbi, um, who, who described the, uh, the, the, the repentance that one does uh, during the high holy days, the days of awe. As, as a, you, you have to have a crack in the heart in order to really turn, do, do the turning that's required. Which is, which is um, not easy to do. Um, was he a uh, conservative rabbi, reform rabbi? Or no, he was, a, he was a conservative rabbi, but he was famous for... Um, he started out as a... He was the... I don't remember if his father or his grandfather was a rabbi. He came from a family of religious Jews. He was, uh, you know, of the 60s generation, he became a Zen Buddhist and uh, his, he, he was on his way to becoming, you know, a priest, a Zen Buddhist priest. But they, in order to do that, he had, he had to say that Buddha is my refuge. And his, uh, his Jewish soul rebelled. And so in his mid-30s, he went to a Union Theological Seminary to study and become a rabbi. He's a very interesting man and has written a, the book he wrote about the uh, days of awe is called which of course is, a, is when you look into your life um, and try to uh, adjust it. <laughs> uh, he calls it this is real and you are completely unprepared. <laughs> that, that's a very a good comment. A good comment on life itself. Anyway, so uh, I I started to write this book when I, uh, you know, I, I for some reason I can't, I, I don't remember anymore. Uh, I uh, picked up Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, um, which I had remembered being on my father's shelf, even though it was just a college book that he had kept. My father, being a Marxist, would have little use for Marcus Aurelius. Um, but I, I read this book, and it had a pretty powerful impact on me. Yeah, can you show? I thought you did a very good job of describing um, Aurelius himself. Um, in addition to what, what he said, can you talk a little bit about his background and, and why he was such an important emperor, and uh, why his meditations were uh, are, are still read today? He was. He was a, apparently a, a good man, actually. Which was rare in that crowd, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he took these notes which he wrote to himself uh, um, 
it was like a, a diary of reflections on life. Um, and they were discovered by monks uh, in the Middle Ages. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, I'm trying to remember the dates, I think it's something like 120. It's 121 to 180. This is that's, lifespan. That's right. And uh, But he, they were discovered in the Middle Ages. And uh, there are passages in them that, that, that really prefigure uh, he was not a Christian, but um, prefigure Christianity, or don't really prefigure it. They, they're um, similar because Christianity was already there. Um, and what struck me about it, um, there was one one passage in particular. Of course, it's it's a it's a stoic view of life that life it, that you know we're creatures. Uh, even though we have consciousness, we are uh, creatures like any other. We're going to die. We're going to disappear. Um, one of his phrases is, "Soon, you know, you will be no one and nowhere." It's a very stark. Most of the book is a very stark view of our lot, and it has some good advice in it. Um, you know, basically, don't sweat the small stuff or even the big stuff um, because you can't really affect it, but you can change your attitude towards it and not let it affect you. That that's the, the message of the book. But the passage that really struck me was that um, you know when you wake up in the morning, you're going to be people who are rude and uh, aggressive and deceitful and selfish. Um, but what else would you expect? Um, you know, don't, uh, don't strive that there should be no shameless men in the world because that's, that's what there are. You will, you will always encounter rude and, um, selfish and deceitful people, and actually everybody has a little rudeness, deceit, and selfishness. So, for a, a revolutionary, is what I saw myself. I was going to change the world. You know, that's that's a, that's a real shock to the system. No progressive could accept that because every progressive wants to change people. You can't change the world if you can't change people. This kind of reminds me of that that haunting section in your book uh, Destructive Generation when you talk about the the murder of your colleague by the uh, by some members of the Black Panthers party and how they were so blase um, about it and uh, it wasn't really a, an issue to them and you were shocked and horrified and yes. that that awakening in you that um, he, that he talks about in terms of you know what what else do you expect from people. Well, yes, but I, of course, I expected from from progressives everything. If we uh, behave this way, how could we expect anybody else not to? So if they didn't care about an injustice right in their midst, that called into question everything. Um, so you're right. I mean, there's a parallel there. But Marcus Aurelius can't live with this point of view. Uh, he he wrestles with the the fact that okay, if life is meaningless, um, why aren't I killing myself? I mean, you know, what's the point of 
surviving here, uh, you know, to the end of a natural life, um, if it's all meaningless. And he really never is able to answer that question. In other words, if there's no God, or in his case, no gods to take care of us, um, what is the what is the purpose of our existence that keeps us going? And he asked the question over and over uh, until he comes to he, he comes up with a a, um, a fabricated answer. Right? He says. I, I perceive beauty in the, in the world. Because we perceive beauty, there must be an order. Um, and therefore, there are gods who, who care about us. There's a design to the universe. That doesn't really make any sense. I mean, atheists think their lives are meaningful. Um, but that doesn't mean they are. <laughs> so, you know, that tells us that human beings can't live without us a sense of purpose, a meaning. They can't think of their lives as adding up to nothing. And so the question then becomes, what do they believe in? Well, if they believe in a God who is going to sort things out after we're dead, that has certain consequences, which in my view are benign. But if they don't believe in a, in a divinity who's going to and of course, I'm an agnostic, so I don't really know the answer here. And actually, the answers are all by faith. There's no, no, there's no proof of God, that God exists. It's a matter of faith. But there's also no proof that he doesn't exist. Atheism is just another, another form of faith, another kind of faith. Um, and progressive, what I would call progressivism, but it has... You know, socialism, communism, Nazism as well, all find meaning by um, human beings being able to transform the world into a place where there is order, where there is social justice, is the current buzzword of these people. And um, this is very dangerous. It's a very dangerous illusion that you can change the world because it means that people who are, you know, obnoxious, selfish, deceitful, should be given, uh, the vanguard, should be given enough power to force everybody uh, into this new world that they're creating. And, of course, that's where all the terrible uh, crimes of the 20th century and now the 21st come from. And, of course, some believers, uh, the... Uh, Islamic uh, jihadists, um, they believe in a divinity, but they think they're the agents of the divinity and that they can uh, change the world and make it a holy place. And all of these creeds fly in the face of the simple truths, uh, uh, but profound ones that are set forth in the first chapters of Genesis, um, which have struck me through my writings, I mean, I, I, I mentioned this in Radical Sun already, and that is that, of course, the, the root cause, just to make this into a, a sort of a popular formula, the root cause of the of social problems is us. It's not society. The fault doesn't lie in society, because society is just a reflection of who we are. 
the problem is with human beings. Sounds um, like you're getting back to your Shakespeare roots of the fall by the was, stars, yeah. but in ourselves, right? <laughs> I was thinking that myself as I was saying <laughs> that Julius Caesar. Of course, that was an incitement to murder Caesar, that line. But um, They were trying to remake the world too, right? But yeah, but Dostoevsky, you know, he saw this is not, not just in the atheistic creeds, but also in, in Roman Catholicism. That uh, Christianity made a deal with the Roman Empire and became the official religion of the empire. And in Dostoevsky's view, sold its soul. That made a pact basically with the devil um, to deliver happiness to people by giving them bread, authority, mystery, and authority. And, and this is a really very profound perception of Dostoevsky that. That freedom is really intolerable for human beings. That is the uncertainty. If you know, if there's a design and you know you know the design and you know what's right and you know what you have to do, then you don't really have a choice. What makes life interesting and what makes us human is that we have the freedom to choose. So Dostoevsky answers the question as to why is God hidden? Um, why? Why has there been no second coming for 2,000 years? And the answer for Dostoevsky of why God doesn't manifest himself and compel belief is that, it, that, that freedom is the very essence of, of being human. Um, the presence of evil in the world is the result of human choices. So they're all, it's all bound up in one uh, conundrum for us. Uh, a very, very interesting, interesting view. And both the Catholic Church and communism and all these creeds try to resolve the human dilemma and human suffering, which comes from this uncertainty as to whether, whether there is a divinity, what is the meaning of our lives. It gives the meaning to our lives and resolves all this basically a, a totalitarian system by taking away our freedom. Take away people's freedom, give them something to worship, and they become happy. And that's why we can't escape this, this history. It repeats itself over and over again. People want, want a simplistic belief. They want a, an authority to worship. And uh, there's really very little you can do to shake them from, from that. I mean, I give this example of the book of Stalin had killed maybe one member of every family in Russia. I mean, he killed 40 million people, and who knows how many they put in the in the gulags. Which is just um, a staggering number, though. I mean, you, you, you... exactly, maybe a hundred million, whatever it is. Everybody suffered under Stalin. Yet when he died, the millions of people attended his funeral, and a thousand of them. There were so many people, and a thousand were trampled to death. And uh, I give this example, I can't remember the exact statistic. Well, after his death, they, they did a poll of, you know, who was the most popular Russian, and he was in history, and I think he was number three after Alexander Nevsky and Peter the Great. There are still worshippers of Stalin. It's, it's so hard to shake this. It's, I, re, I remember um, when Stalin died, my father well, first of all, we were all shattered because he was the genius that was leading <laughs> the progressive cause at the time. And Stalin had killed all the 
people around him, and then appointed himself to the position. So he was the president of the Soviet Union. He was the general secretary of the Communist Party. He was the generalissimo of the army, and there were other titles that he had. And my father said to me, you see what a genius Stalin was? They took five people to replace him. <laughs> but this is, uh, you know, th this book is not a particularly hopeful book. I mean, um, well, we noticed. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think once you see that, I mean, at least I've, I've, I've found a, a more, you know, the kind of comfort that Marcus Aurelius offered. I think it was T.S. Eliot who once said there were no lost causes because there are no won ones. And that's a very comforting thought if you're in these battles, believe me. Well, you know, I feel sad. I think that the world is a much worse place than it was when I was a young young person. Certainly, in, in the end of the book, I sort of give this Jewish perspective. I mean, the Jews are in as, as bad a situation as they've ever been now. Um, globally hated and now by countries uh, run by religious fanatics with nuclear weapons. Um, it's hard to see a positive, positive future. I'm also struck by how the entire liberal world, which is like is really the leftist world, is doing the same kind of apologetics um, and uh, interference for the uh, Jew haters in, uh, in the Middle East as they did for the communists. So. Looked at from this a narrow perspective of the Jews, it's pretty terrible where we are. But you you could extend this very easily since um, the Islamic Jihad has been declared not only against the Jews but also the Crusaders, <laughs> which is to say America and Christians generally. And you know, I, I could very well see in a Middle Ages or a Dark Ages returning. Um, because there's nothing that has prevented, although Islam has developed nothing of any significance in the last thousand years. It's not that Muslims are stupid people. Um, it's their, you know their religion held held back all these developments. Religion per se. I mean, if you look at uh, Bernard Lewis, I mean, he talks about uh, all of the accomplishments of Islam before a thousand years ago and how it kind of stagnated because of the lack of a reformation. So, I mean, well, exactly, but it's a fundamentalist proved religion can uh, promote uh, real. It's a fundamentalist religion, and it's a totalitarian one. But it also has access to all modern technologies, and that—that's why I, I mean, I don't think maybe it wouldn't last. It's very difficult to control information with the internet and so forth. But um, but anyway, I'm not a great believer in the moral progress of mankind. It's, as you can tell, as, as I've, I've written in this book, I, there, I think, there is a counter argument to, to which I assume you'd be somewhat sympathetic that, that there has been progress on a whole bunch of fronts. I mean, the, you say the Jews, I mean, the Jews are uh, in the U.S. at least freer than, than they've ever been, and they can you know, practice their religion openly, and they're successful in, in many fields. Um, you, you talk about America as a great power, something that didn't exist uh, 300 years ago, and I believe a force for good. Uh, yep. you know, Comfortable. You know, more people are living comfortably and longer lives than, than ever before. I would, uh, yeah, I, I, 
the, the more people living comfortably and longer lives is a product of science, but also capitalism, of course. Uh, which which, is under which I think you endorse. Of course. That's it's why, a, I mean. It's under attack from all the intellectual classes. Um, I, the argument isn't that progress doesn't take place. The argument is that there's advance and then there's retreat. Um, if the United States were to be obliterated, defeated, you know, or if socialists, um, and we now have, we have them in the White House, we have the Democratic Party is, to all intents and purposes, a socialist party. And then the whole, uh, the, the, the the mainstay of freedom in the world is, well, you know, I don't, don't want to be over dramatic and say gone, but certainly tremendously diminished uh, and already is. Um, since 9-11, we've been losing steadily. Uh, Bush set out to make sure there was no terrorist state or a state that would harbor terrorists. And since then, I mean, we've had a terrorist state established in Gaza. Of course, there's one in the West Bank. There's one in Lebanon, uh, Yemen. Uh, you know, one could go now... Uh, Libya, the Libyan maniac had been put in a box, but thanks to Obama now, the Muslim Brotherhood, now Egypt, we're losing in a big way in this in this war. So I just, you know, I couldn't look towards the future and say, hey, it's going to be uh, better than it was. And, and you know, and just little things that are not so little in the United States. You used to be able to walk in the streets and park at night in America. You can't really do that anymore. On the other um, hand, uh, when I was growing up in New York, you could not walk in Central Park in the day or the night, and now it's a pretty safe place to go. So, I mean, there there, there is progress on, on many fronts, certainly. Well, okay, so it regressed from you're younger than I am then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one other thing you talk about yeah. that, that um, you know, in this somewhat depressing vein is how you I – mean, at one point in the book you allude to how you've written stuff, but does anybody ever read it? Does anybody read this thing that you're writing? And – I would argue that many of your stuff, uh, many of your books have been very influential. I had a close colleague who used to buy stacks of your book on the Kennedys and would give out paperbacks to people who uh, professed admiration for them and say, well, you know, read this book and then see if you still believe that. And as I said earlier, a destructive generation had a real um, uh, impact on me as a young person who got involved in the policies world. And as somebody today who you know, tries to uh, influence the debate through through my writing, uh, I would like to think that it has an impact. So I, I found it very jarring that you felt that uh, you, your prolific you know, has been impacted. So I, I appreciate those comments, but uh, but I think I, I'm, I'm being realistic. The intellectual level of liberalism, so-called, is so low at this point. Um, I just picked up a couple of books by incredibly respected writers that are so silly, both of them, one by Michael Kazin and the other. That was the book on the history of the American left, right? It's an idiotic book. What was the um, other one? And the other one is Alan Wolfson's book on political evil, which is, is incoherent um, and stupid. You know, I, I, I have found, well, first of all, I think in part there's, there's been an, such a, a lockout of conservatives in, you know, organs like the New York Times Book Review, which is the only really important book review. The conservatives just aren't reviewed, or if they're reviewed, they let the, their enemies review the books, whereas they let supporters review the other books. So 
So liberals have no, they have no critical correction mechanism. And that's why their books have just intellectually so degenerated uh, in the years. I mean, I think the conservatives have a vibrant intellectual culture, but it's locked out of, out of the universities. And I conducted a, a pretty lonely campaign to in universities to get um, two sides. And, you know, to get any professor should assign books on both sides of controversial issues, and every issue in the liberal arts is controversial. And they should treat them with respect and let the students make up their minds, which is the way I was taught at Columbia in the 50s. Uh, and I completely failed. I had I, I, there was no support um, from the conservative intelligentsia. I wrote five books on the, on the university um, showing and he, and how whole fields like women's studies are just you know political parties in the university teaching ludicrous doctrines like. One that Dostoevsky actually deals with in this book, the, the social environment determines everything. So gender is socially constructed and race is socially constructed. I mean, these are absurdities. And uh, if you walk across the campus to the neuroscience department or the biology department, you you know you will see that these theories refuted. But we have now generations have gone through these universities learning this garbage. And it's created really, you know, almost two countries intellectually. Now there are there are plenty of scholars who are not conservatives who are good scholars. I don't, I don't want to be the areas like history and anthropology and sociology and so forth um, that deal with contemporary issues have been so distorted uh, by the one-party system that's been imposed on the universities that I, uh, you know, I'm, I can't be sanguine I mean, I, I, at all. I, I'm, I think, you know, a figure like Thomas Sowell, who is the most important writer on race and culture in America, is completely unknown to college graduates these days. Just completely unknown. Um and he's, he's certainly revered in some circles, and um... yeah, I mean, the conservative, you know, conservatives have created a little alternate universe. And I don't mean to belittle it. I think it's a very important one. It's there's something positive in the American future. It rests on these institutions. And, well, and there are institutions that didn't exist in the in the 60s, no, I, for example. Yeah, but look, so that's I mean, a huge step. Up. I mean, uh, you know, Heritage, say, or American Enterprise Institute, or Ethics and Public Policy Center. These are important. Or Hudson Institute, I might add. Pardon, and Hudson, <laughs> but they're they're dwarfed by Harvard, Yale, you know, and several thousand universities, which are now you know part of the political party of the left. There's not even a pretense. Well, there is a pretense at being scholarly. I mean, they have footnotes and things, but I've written myself out on this. I wrote a book called One Party Classroom, just examining the the curricula of 150 or odd courses at 12 universities showing that um, it's just an indoctrination. The universities today, let me put it this way, modern research university today in the liberal arts fields has reverted to the 19th century doctrinal colleges, which 
trained priests, only these are priests in a secular religion uh, called socialism. And th that's what our liberal arts departments have become. And uh, I don't think, I, you know, you write a book like that, it's, you know, it's all documented. And uh, there's no engagement. There's no discussion of this fact. So it's been very frustrating. Anyway, I don't know how we got off on this. But, no, uh, it, it was it, it, we got off on it because it was it was clearly a message of your book, which again I, I found uh, somewhat disturbing as someone who's who's read your stuff for years, who's seen the impact you right. had, and who's also seen a lot of progress take place in my lifetime. I mean, I grew up in the New York in the 1970s, which was one of the most dysfunctional polities in in, in recent memory, and perhaps in the last few hundred years. And and now New York is a better place, and I would argue that this country, in many ways, is is a better place. Um, and and part of the things that you talk about, such as a, a lack of a conservative alternative voice, is something that has developed in, in my lifetime. It's something I, I appreciate and think has led to real improvement. I'm sorry, I missed that last. What's led to the improvements? Well, I think the the, the existence of, a, of a, an alternative voice. Oh, I agree. I, I don't disagree. I just think the that... David Horowitz Freedom Center, right? I mean, there, you know, there are places to get other points of view out there. I'm not going to disagree with you. I mean, I the trend is just so, you know, horribly in the other direction. You know, maybe I've just become an old codger. <laughs> Who knows? I... Uh, but I don't think so. I think I'm being pretty realistic. Um, if, if you have become an old culture, you clearly are one who uh, has a very talented pen because this book, is, as I said, I don't mean to butt heads because the book is beautifully written and, and I found it very moving. Um, and, and it really made me question a whole bunch of things since, again, uh, I'm someone who tries to influence the debate somewhat with, with, with my own pen and to see your thoughts, uh, and, uh, you know, your generation ahead of me and, and, and how you think you've impacted the debate. I, I just found it really... It might be, you know, that I'm living in Los Angeles and you're in Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C. has a, a rich conservative culture. That may be part of the difference. I, I'm also doing this podcast, and I'm talking to people from across the country. You know, liberals and conservatives. I mean, uh, this is not an ideological podcast, and so I, I see a, a whole bunch of people writing really interesting stuff uh, from from multiple sides of the, of the spectrum. Now, I have not gotten any of the types of books that you talk about that are kind of just mindlessly ideological. Uh, but you know, I, I think I have reason to be optimistic. Well, that, that is, that is, you know, it was. Um, said in the early 50s, he, he dismissed conservative thought as a mental irritability. Irritable that, mental gestures disguised as ideas, I believe it was. Thank you. That exactly <laughs> describes liberalism today. Exactly. You know, I, I wish it were different. It would be more interesting intellectually to engage them. But I, I don't even know where you begin with the, uh, the books that Kazan and, and Wolf have written. Um, you know, uh, well, I you know I don't want to do a book review of their of their, of their books. That's right. This is about your book. But it's so superficial. Yeah. Well. Anyway. Well, you've been very generous with your time, and I really do appreciate the conversation. We do have a traditional last question here on new books in public policy, and that is. Uh, and, and I think we've seen a little bit of the answer already, but w what public policy initiatives would you pursue as a result of what you've seen in the course of writing this book? So if you were czar for a day, what would you institute? Well, I'd like there to be two sides to a, a question in our university. Questions, I, w I would like professional behavior from professors, but I, I, don't, I, I don't think there's a snowball chance in hell of that. 
occurring in the foreseeable future. I'm encouraged by the emergence of the development of the Tea Party. See, conservative movement has never had a grassroots movement before. And the Democratic Party was shifted far to the left because of the pressures of that of such a grassroots movement. And I'm hoping that there'll be a little redress of the balance. Um, I'm liking, uh, there is the law of unintended consequences for people who think that it all tends one way as I'm, (laughs) I can trap myself here into suggesting, I don't mean to suggest that. But these leftist professors have created a generation, new generations of conservative youngsters who are very feisty, who can be aggressive, uh, who are much more sophisticated than the ones I encountered 20 years ago when I began speaking on college campuses. Um, there's, there's a tremendous intellectual vigor in the conservative movement. And I, you know, I, of course, I agree with you that, um, you know, the pioneer institutions that were created 30 and 40 years ago by conservatives because they were basically driven out of the universities have a lot of responsibility for this. And and figures who are disparaged, of course, by the, by the culture because the culture is so far to the left. But figures like Rush Limbaugh and, and Glenn Beck, um, who was also disparaged by some... Both of them are by some conservatives. Conservatives are always looking over their shoulder at the New York Times. It's a big mistake. A much more coherent conservative worldview. Conservatives finally understand uh, how organized the left is, how far back it goes, how ideological it is. Um, This was not the case when I left the left. I, I, I was always surprised by how conservatives always addressed leftists or liberals and you know took them at their face value if they call themselves progressives or peace activists or civil rights workers conservatives gave a lot of credence to that where, where they didn't deserve to have that uh, given to that the left didn't so i'm i i think there's been great advances and uh, I'm, I'm actually pleased by your unwillingness to go along with my uh, Pessimism. It's my job. I'm a Wattenbergian optimist. <laughs> Precisely because they're somewhat younger and uh, coming at it from a different angle. That's that's very encouraging. Uh, and I do think that the internet has changed dramatically. Changed the situation. There's too much information out there. It's too easy to get access. You can't really. The New York Times may not review conservative books or may commission hatchet jobs on them. But the thoughts of conservatives are easily accessible on the web for anybody with the curiosity to look at them. And that, you know, I may be way uh, overestimating the impact of universities these days because of that. When I went to Columbia, the, the kind of books you would find moldering in the library now, you could just access on Google. I mean, it's unbelievable. The information you can have. You know, in an instant, you, know, you, you would have to have information assembled, you know, like statistics and facts and histories of things and descriptions 
they would all be filtered through a very small, whether the New York Times, the paper of record, or what, um, or Walter Cronkite, the spectrum has been so exploded that I, I really you know, could not predict what's going to happen over the next decades, either in this country or, or elsewhere, because the Internet is a global phenomenon, and it really has changed things in ways that we are not beginning to understand. But this, this gets away, I mean, I'd like to just conclude on I don't think I'm wrong in my book that people live by myths, that they need the myths, that we're not going to get to a place where there's clarity and where, where there's rationality. I'll go back to Matthew Arnold's phrase, a clash of ignorant armies by night is the way I see the political battles. Although I, um, I'm hoping we get this guy out of the White House, and I'm hoping the Republican wins. Well, as for the uh, clash of ignorant armies uh, constituting politics, I'd say same as it ever was. But, um, exactly. But, uh, Ecclesiastes had it right. <laughs> uh, David Horowitz, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books in Public Thank Law. you, Ted. I enjoyed our conversation. I did as well. Well, as you can tell, David Horowitz is clearly a smart, interesting, learned, but also opinionated fellow. I tried to inject a little note of optimism into our conversation, but he clearly has a somewhat pessimistic view of where things are going in the world. But he also has some strong thoughts about where people go when you begin to reach the end of the journey. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and the conversation with David Horowitz. This is Tevi Troy for New Books in Public Policy. And as always, I hope that you continue to keep reading. Thank you.